Hi, everyone. It's Nika, the founder of Urban Remedy, welcoming you to the You Are Love podcast, inspiring health through food, lifestyle, and making conscious choices. Today, I'm speaking to Ethan Frisch. Ethan is the co-founder of Burlap and Barrel, former chef and activist who connects farmers around the world to new markets. Ethan was a New York City chef and became a U.S. aid worker in Afghanistan that his world opened up to direct sourcing and farmer representation. He began bringing rare ingredients from all over the world to kitchens everywhere, helping farmers set up their own export abilities for the first time in the history of the spice trade. Welcome, Ethan. Thanks for having me. That is quite a um, intro. Is there anything I missed? Uh, no, I mean, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's been a road, as I think any entrepreneur will tell you, starting and, and running a company, especially when it's a company that deals with ingredients that most people in the U.S. haven't heard of before or haven't cooked with at the very least. Um, so uh, it's but it's been fun. Well, I'm lucky. And so for those of you that don't know, Burlap and Barrel provides amazing spices. I was lucky enough to receive some of them in the mail. So thank you so much. Let's start out by why don't you tell us a little bit about your history um, in Afghanistan and how you kind of started? Sure. So I, I graduated from college in 2008, which was a really bad year to graduate from college. Um, and uh, I had a job lined up with a political foundation, but uh, they lost their endowment pretty shortly thereafter. And so I found myself needing a job. Uh, I had been interested in politics and international relations, international development, but I had also always loved to cook. And so I kind of wound up cooking in a restaurant kitchen, um, uh, learned a ton, got screamed at a lot. It was a pretty classic, <laughs> uh, like, you know, New York City restaurant kitchen with a fair amount of cursing and drug use and, and all the other uh, fun things that happened in, in New York City restaurant kitchens at that time. Um, uh, but but I was just, uh, you know, I was just a sponge. I was learning as much as I could, uh, soaking up as much of the environment and, and the knowledge of, of all of the people around me. Um, and uh, I, I was looking for ways to, to come back to, f- to, to, to bring my two interests together, to come back to food. I ultimately left kitchens, went to grad school for international development, and then moved to Afghanistan, uh, where I lived for about two and a half years working for a big NGO. And I was managing an infrastructure and local governance project. We were building schools and roads and bridges in really remote rural areas of the northeast of the country. Wow. Um, and it's also part of the country that's famous, at least within Afghanistan, famous for, for a variety of cumin that grows wild up in the mountains, um, which I, I tasted and was blown away by and, and started bringing home with me, not, not initially as a business, just to share with my friends in, in restaurants. Um, and I had worked at, at a restaurant called Tabla with a chef named Floyd Cardoz. So I, you know, I, I thought I knew what I was talking about when it came to spices. And then I just, I, I started to realize how little I knew, um, started to see how my chef friends, how excited my chef friends got at these ingredients that I was bringing home, knowing basically nothing about how it was supposed to work. Um, and then I was having conversations with producers in Afghanistan and then, and then later on in other countries too, who who usually knew that there was a higher value market out there, knew that they could be selling their crops for more money than they were, but um, but just didn't know how to get there, didn't have the regulatory uh, know-how, didn't have the logistical resources to get their products uh, physically to those places. So so it um, was kind of a natural progression to think about how to bring those two groups of people together. Wow, that's incredible, Ethan. I love your story and I love cumin. It's one of my favorite spices that I've been cooking with for a really long time. So that's exciting. How does cumin grow in Afghanistan? I'm so curious. Yeah, well, I mean, it has it has 
remained probably my favorite spice uh, that we carry, and it's one of our best sellers. But the 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 sort of secret about it is that it's actually not uh, botanically not cumin. It's a different species, um, and it tastes like cumin. It, it reads like cumin in a dish, but um, but this plant, which grows wild uh, up in the mountains, grows in these little sort of shrubby bushes um, during the summer when it's, when it's, you know, there's a very short growing season. It's, the altitude is so high and the weather is really cold most of the year. Uh, but during the summer, you get these beautiful lacy little white flowers. And each flower gets pollinated and each flower turns into a single seed. Um, and, and then towards the end of the summer, as the, as the seeds, you know, as the seeds start to appear and, and dry out on the plant, um, groups of people go through the mountains and forage for them. They pick these plants, shake the seeds off of the stalks into, you know, into a little bag of some kind and then carry it back home. And then ultimately to the small city in this, in this province, a city called Faizabad. Um, and then we truck it down through the mountains to Kabul, which is a pretty epic trip and put it on a plane usually at one of the uh, one of the military bases and ship it to the US. That is incredible. Are there farms in the United States that grow cumin or is this all imported? So this variety of of cumin is is really specific to that part of the world to the this is the eastern end of the Himalayas that we're talking about. I'm sorry, the western end of the Himalayas that we're talking about. So you do find this variety in Afghanistan and Pakistan and India to some extent, but I've really never seen it grown anywhere else in the world. And and in general, spices tend to be fairly technical, uh, difficult crops to grow. They require very specific environment and terroir, um, and they often take a long time. Cumin is a little bit different, but when we're talking about spices like black pepper or cinnamon or vanilla, they take a long time to reach maturity. And so it's a, for a farmer, it's a, a process that really rewards persistence, and, and you often see farmers who have been growing these crops for, for decades or, or even for generations in many cases, because it, it takes that long to learn how to do it right. Yeah, I love that. I'm a herbalist as well. And so, um, you know, when I was studying, when I was in school studying the herbs, you know, so many of the herbs are just what you said. It depends on the soil and they've been grown for generations or centuries on certain plots of land. And when people try to grow them in different areas, the quality is just so much different. So it, there is so much wisdom in the growing process of herbs and spices. And it's so it's such a beautiful process. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I think most people, most home cooks or, you know, even professional chefs in the U.S. still don't realize that spices come from plants, that they're grown on farms by farmers, that there's an agricultural process behind them. You know, and when we eat cinnamon or, or black pepper, you know, most people eat black pepper every single day without realizing that it grew on a vine and was handpicked. And, you know, there was a whole uh, very particular process behind it. Um, so that's a lot of what we what we try to do is, is help people understand uh, these these beautiful natural agricultural processes that exist behind uh, ingredients that that have been really overlooked. Yeah, I love it. And I think cinnamon is a great example because, you know, we I've created recipes for Urban Remedy and we, for example, just were trying to change the variety of cinnamon that we use and the flavor was so different um, it was incredible. So that we ended up not being able to change, but, you know, and then the different varieties have different medicinal properties as well. Uh, there, so there are four commercially cultivated species of cinnamon grown around the world. And, and there's a lot of variability in terms of, um, in terms of that flavor. Some of it has to do with the species. Some of it has to do with the age of the tree, the age of the branch or the bark that's being harvested. It has to do with the way that it's being dried and processed after the harvesting. Um, and, 
there, there's a, a, a fifth species that's grown in India exclusively exclusively for the leaves. Cinnamon tree leaves are used in a lot of Indian cooking. Um, so uh, there's just a lot of complexity behind cinnamon that, that I think most people don't really realize. Yeah. Occasionally we'll have people email us or call into the call center and they ask us what variety of cinnamon we use. And they really don't want like a specific variety because they said it's really, you know, dangerous to eat. And I, and we don't use that variety, but um, you would have to eat a lot of the cinnamon to have that effect. But yeah. it's, it's very interesting. People do that a lot. Um, so t- let's talk a little bit about like sustainability of herbs. And I'm just, I'm really curious because, you know, right now sustainability, a lot of people are talking about it and the health of our soil. And um, I'd love to just learn more, you know, I'm, we're, we're certified organic, so we're always using organic herbs and spices, but can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think this conversation always starts with sort of a, a question around how do you define sustainability? And there's, there's lots of ways to look at it, but um, I think often the the mainstream definition leaves out the people involved in the supply chain. It, it you know it focuses on it usually focuses on animals or it focuses on agricultural processes, but it doesn't really look at uh, how much money the the individual person who grew this ingredient is making and whether that's a sustainable life for them and, and for their family. Um, and so we spend a lot of time working on that, working with farmers who. Uh, are growing something that's really exceptional, really special, different from what everybody else around them might be growing, um, but are kind of stuck in that commodity supply chain. They sell to the local buyer or broker or whoever it is, uh, who then sells on to somebody else and sells on to somebody else and sells on to somebody else. And so by the end of it, by the export process, uh, anything special that that original farmer was doing is, is lost because their their product is just getting mixed together with everybody else's. Um, and and, and what we have found is that often those farmers, the farmers who we wind up working with, who are good partners for us, um, who are growing her- her- heritage varieties or, um, you know, making very intentional choices in, in what they grow, they are also often growing organically because uh, they understand that, that there's a connection between, between agricultural process and flavor. And that when you uh, create a regenerative environment, a, sustain- a sustainable environment for plants to grow, the, you will you will taste certain things in the plants that you didn't taste or you wouldn't taste if they're grown using uh, chemical pesticides or fertilizers. So we've we've seen this really interesting correlation between farmers who are really knowledgeable and really passionate, but also uh, have have <laughs> are really taking sustainability seriously and and are approaching it um, from a, from a flavor perspective rather than just sort of a, a good for the planet perspective. Right. Which always makes it, that's what I always say. It's like, you know, you want to offer people really healthy food and you want it to be healthy, but you also want it to taste good because they're not going to want to eat it again. So you need to be inspired by taste and temperature and, and, um, flavors. And, you know, you want to be excited. Eating is such a sensual experience that part of it, you know, that's the most important part. People get really overwhelmed when you start talking about sustainability. And a lot of people, you know, want, to shop by convenience and obviously they want it to taste good. Like we just talked about. And obviously price is important for people when they're, when they're talking about sustainability. Um, but I think it's so important for people to understand like all the little things that they can do when they're shopping. And I love what you're talking about. It's like a lot of times we don't think about, you know, when you're looking at all of the options of spices or milk or dairy or bean or fruits and vegetables, you know, that when you are buying something, you're voting with your dollars. And so, you make a really great point. Like, are we thinking about, you know, the farmer? I think when we're buying fruits and vegetables, a lot of times we think more about the farmer and um, buying organic or probably a lot of people do. 
But with spices, I think you're making such a really interesting point. It's something that I haven't really thought about very much is that we're buying these spices from, you know, exotic faraway places. And who is the farmer and how are those spices that are mostly grown, you know, in these different countries? How do we get them? You know, so we want to look at how is food produced, how is it distributed and packaged and who's growing it and and how many miles it's traveled and where it's from. And um, I think you made such a great point. The most important thing is, are we supporting these farmers that have been growing these herbs for generations and, and keeping their soil clean? And I know I've heard from quite a few farmers that it's really difficult especially when you're in another country, to be certified organic. It's very expensive and a lot of the farmers can't afford it, yet they are already, you know, following these practices. Yeah, yeah, it's virtually impossible. I mean, uh, our several of our partner farmers, I would say most of our partner farmers are certified organic by, by local standards or by local bodies, but the USDA certification process is so expensive and so lengthy that it, it really doesn't make sense for a smallholder farmer to do that. They can't afford it and they won't see the premium. Um, because the premium really ultimately goes to the retailer rather than to the farmer. So uh, it, the, the business model just doesn't work for farmers to get certified organic. Oh, it's so um, frustrating because like when I first started Urban Remedy, I was like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to be certified organic. And so I sent away for the paperwork and I didn't realize I was doing it with CCOF, who I love, but they're one of the more difficult um people to become certified from. And I got my big packet of paperwork and I was like, I'm going to fill this out. And it literally took me probably a year to become certified because it's like more difficult than buying a house. I mean, you have to hire more people and there's so many processes, you know, and I'm somebody who had some funding behind me. So I can't imagine a small farmer trying to, you know, be able to follow all of the rules and guidelines and all of the paperwork. Cause you really, it takes a lot more labor and time to be able to do that. And the, one of the things that I find really frustrating is I'll find purveyors that I'd like to work with who are certified or sorry, they're not certified organic, but they are following the practices. But because they don't have the paperwork, I can't support them and use them because then I won't have my organic certification. Yeah. And so it's like this balance between, you know, it's very frustrating because you want to support these other farmers, but um with your organic certification, you actually can't. And I wish there was somebody, I, I'm sure there are groups or do you know of groups that are trying to change that somehow? Or I, I wish yeah. the organic certification process would there kind are, of support them. There are other uh, certification processes, you know, beyond fair trade, even there's there's fair for life and there's others. But I think what what I've started to see at least, um, especially with fair trade and and with organic is that it it is often easier for a large corporate uh, corporate grower of something to set up a farm that meets organic standards or fair trade standards and and then they pocket the premium instead of it going to smallholders who who really is is where it should be going originally right. who the system was designed to support but but because they're the ones with the money and they're the ones with the access to land and, and other resources they can set up a farm that just checks the box meets the requirements um, and and actively undermines the farmers that, that these systems were designed for. So what do you do or how can we change that or support the system? Uh, I'm, I mean, to your earlier question about, about, you know, shopping for groceries, I'm the absolute worst person to shop for groceries with. My wife refuses to go into the supermarket with me anymore because I just take, you know, I take an hour and a half on, I, I can't. I can't buy anything quickly. I read every label. I, I just, I can't, uh, I can't, I can't breeze through the grocery store like a normal person because I'm, I'm too, 
tied up in knots about all of these questions. I think. Wait, so um, tell me, wait, I want to know, wait, don't go any farther. What are the things that you look at? I'm so curious. So like so, what, when you're looking, what are like the top five things? So first of all, I'm, I'm basically never going to buy anything manufactured by any of the huge food conglomerates or any of their subsidiaries. So that's a fair amount of work to, to understand kind of who those might be. Um, I'm, I'm also, I'm looking, first of all, at ingredient lists. What's, what's the first thing on the list? What's the second thing on the list? Um, is there any statement on the packaging at all about where those things might be grown or coming from, which, which will uh, obviously help a lot. Uh, just, you know, as a consumer, I want to know that a company has their supply chain dialed in, that they, they know where something is coming from, that they take pride in, in where they're sourcing their ingredients. You know, this is something I learned as a, as a cook. If you're, if you right. start with bad ingredients, the, the finished product is not going to taste very good. So, um, looking for companies that, that take pride in the ingredients that they use. Um, I'm, I'm always super skeptical of, of buzzwords and flashy marketing. Uh, I will, I will usually pick the thing that looks uglier, that looks, uh, you know, that doesn't have bright colors, but you know, I think it's also important to, to note in the context of all of this, this, this is a system that's in place. My purchasing decision, your purchasing decision, you know, basically no matter how many people we know and we, how many people we can convert, that's not enough to change this system. This system goes back for for centuries and and is embedded in agricultural processes and the plants that people are growing and the way that they're growing them and so you know those of us who are privileged enough to shop at a farmer's market or or make um make decisions that aren't so price conscious that we can we can choose things not exclusively based on price um you know that it's nice for us but but it's not going to change it's not going to change the overall system okay but I would just add that, I mean, I would say in the last 10 years, there has been a lot of change. I would say if you look at companies like Dannon or, you know, General Mills, you know, there are bigger companies that have at least switched over to organic because people had been voting for their dollars and they're seeing, um, you know, how important organic is to people. So now there is like, even if you go into Safeway, you can always choose organic milk. So I think there's been a shift, but I agree with you. I mean, it's going to take a lot more than that, but I think. I think people are becoming, and I think, you know, this generation is becoming more interested in where the food comes from and the soil. I feel like it's a much bigger topic of conversation the last few years than it was, you know, when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And and it's really, it's great to see those conversations happening. Um, but I, I don't know, I'm just a skeptical person by, by nature and, um you know, on the one hand, it's great that organic farmers have an outlet for their products, whether it's dairy or, or veggies or, or meat or anything. It's great that consumers who are interested in those products have have a place to get them, that it's easier and less expensive. But I still suspect that um, that bigger companies marketing organic products are making more money than the farmers are making, you know, as a percentage yeah. or as a, as a premium. Like, where's the money really going in that situation? And, and yes, I, I try to drink organic milk as much as possible or, or only organic milk if I can. But, um, but I, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just too skeptical. I'm not, um, I just, I just have not seen those benefits trickle down to, to farmers or producers in the way that you might expect when, when we're talking about, uh, supply chains at that scale, you know? Yeah, no, I, I hear you. And I just, um, I'm thinking of this documentary that I just saw last year that was so good. And it was all, now I can't remember what it was called, but it was all about um, 
it was all about farmers and it was about meat farming and it was really showing how, you know, the farmers were treated that make the highly processed chicken. I don't know if you saw that. It was really interesting. It was a big eye opener for me. I already would never, I don't really eat meat, but I would never eat factory farm meat. But um, it did highlight how terrible the farmers are treated um, all over the world, but especially the ones that are forced into factory farming, especially chicken and eggs and pork. Um yeah, there, there have been some great books recently. Um, there's a, a new book by a journalist named Michael Moss called Hooked, uh, which, which I just finished and is fascinating about, about ways that processed food manufacturers use um, addiction or, or you know, re- uh, physiological responses close to addiction around sugar and salt and fat. Um, it, yeah, just really fascinating research that, that is showing that, you know, big corporations knew what was happening. They knew that they were yeah. creating a, a, a food. Uh, they knew that they were creating a problem and, and they just didn't care because they were making a lot of money off of it. Yeah. And I mean, I think historically with big ag, big pharma, all of that, you know, we've all been, um, you know, taught that, you know, cheaper is better, convenience is better, and that it's uh, normal to be sick and to take a lot of pills. And so, you know, I think that's one of the conversations that people need to have. I think, you know, especially with commercials now, I hate it every time one of those commercials is on and my son is around, I will turn the volume off because when you're hearing that, you know, one day my son said to me, he goes, mom, does that mean I'm going to have cancer? You know, it was a cancer, a commercial about some medication for cancer. And it's just like all of this is normalized in our culture, right? You know, it's like wake up and eat some processed meat and eat some, you know, white flour and then have a hamburger or whatever for lunch. And and that really is sad, you know, which is the standard American diet. Um, and that's why we've seen so many um, inflammatory disorders like diabetes and heart disease. And, you know, and I've heard a lot of people, especially in this time of COVID that are like, COVID is obviously terrible and, you know, nobody wants to have COVID. But when you look at the numbers of heart disease and heart attacks and diabetes, they're way, way more than COVID. And how come we aren't making that a crisis that those many millions of people are dying a year because of heart disease, mainly based on diet and lifestyle? Yeah. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. I, I mean, it's been really interesting to see the ways that COVID has has highlighted all of the problems in our food and healthcare system from you know, from manufacturing outbreaks at meat packing plants, um, all the way up to right those those chronic health issues. Right, and those are not, and it's not even really talked about. Like people don't even talk about that with COVID. Like if you take vitamin D, you know, and get enough sunshine. If you're eating healthy organic foods, at least those are things that are go- that you can do. It's like something that you can do to increase your immune response and to have a healthier body. If you eat lots of colorful fruits and vegetables that have antioxidant properties. Those are all things that are going to be much better for you than eating, you know, processed high sugar foods, just like you were talking about, because the high sugar, high processed foods that spike your blood sugar actually lower your immune response. But you're really not allowed to talk about that when it comes to COVID. It's like, you know, there's just basically the vaccine and they don't really talk about any other treatments, which has been a little frustrating. And I think unempowering for people, but I think what we're talking about is, um, you know, as as a Chinese medicine practitioner, I was just reading something um, that I thought was so beautiful, and they were talking about how connected we are as human beings to 
the earth and that our bodies are microcosm is a microcosm of the soil and the bacteria and the gardens and you know the flora and fauna in our environment you know that the human body is a biosphere of all of life and that people are like gardens and so doctors are like gardeners so it's important to you know eat healthy food that comes from healthy soil and, you know, eat colors and things that are grown locally. So what are other ways that that our listeners can support um, what you're doing with farmers and spices besides, I mean, obviously buying them is really, really important. <laughs> well, I mean, one one quick note to your, to your earlier point, um, our partner farmer for turmeric in India is a, is an Ayurvedic pharmacologist by training that that was his, his early career. Uh, was prescribing Ayurvedic remedies to to various illnesses, and he got so frustrated. I mean, to your point about uh, moving back in the supply chain and, and thinking about farmers, doctors as farmers. He, that's that's exactly what he did. He got frustrated with seeing the same chronic food related illnesses, um, and decided he needed to become a farmer instead of prescribing treatments. And so uh, he now grows turmeric and sugarcane and peanuts and a few other things. Um, with with a really uh, scientific approach to soil health, and he's, he's very experimental in all of his methods. His his turmeric comes out spectacularly. Obviously, I mean it's just beautiful. Oh wow! Um, but but uh, it, it's so interesting to see a farmer, even in the context of Ayurveda, which which at least in the U.S. has sort of a halo as being more natural and and more um, you know more homeopathic. But uh, but he he was still frustrated with those dynamics over and over again with the dynamics of the health system there? Yeah. Yeah. Or the dynamics of, of those, of those chronic food related illnesses that that people just run into, um, you know, when they're eating processed food, when they're eating food that, that, uh, isn't, that is intentionally not good for them. Um, but because that's the food that the system makes easy and inexpensive. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. That's, I love that story. That's a beautiful story. It's so true. I mean, It's so true. And I think, I hope the one thing that people get from this conversation is that, you know, you always have a choice when you're buying things. And obviously sometimes you can afford something that might be a little bit better for you and a little, and a lot better for the planet. But, you know, even making those small choices when you can does have a huge impact on the food system and farmers and voting with your dollars. And let's talk about just a couple other, because I liked what you were, when you were sharing earlier about like the way you make decisions when you shop. And I'm right there with you. I'm so annoying to go to dinner with. I'm so annoying to go to the grocery store with because I'm like you, like I, I eat only organic. And so I'm always going to restaurants. And I think that's another good topic is like a lot of times, especially as somebody who was a cook, um, I'll go to like a really great farm to table restaurant here in Northern California and I'll be ordering, you know, maybe some French fries and I'll always ask them, what kind of oil is this made in and most of, or fried in? And most of the time the waiter or the waitress, the person doesn't know um, what kind of oil. And most of the time they come back and say, oh, it's canola oil and non-organic canola oil. And um, it's one of the things that drives me nuts is you'll go to these beautiful restaurants and then they're using like these terrible oils and cooking like this beautiful organic food in these oils or they'll be offering, they'll say like organic greens with, you know, this kind of salmon or a kind of meat. And most of the time, you know, it's factory farmed meat. And so um, I don't go out to eat that much because of that. And it's really, I think getting chefs more involved in the conversation and understanding, you know, really where the food comes from is such an important part of what we're talking about. 
I, I have a sort of a different approach in that I really don't feel like I personally have the ability to, to move the needle in any meaningful way. And, and especially since the restaurants that I like to go to um, are often not in a, you know, they're, they're family run restaurants. They're, they're not uh, charging a whole lot of money for the, for the dishes. They're often in kind of smaller residential neighborhoods, especially around New York city. And, um, you know, I, I will take their food at face value and, and enjoy it. Right. And that's, and it's the hard thing, right? Cause then if you're going to do it, then you just have to be okay with it and be like, all right, I'm going to enjoy this. And, and it is what it is, but it's really hard. I think once you, you know, see some of the documentary films or understand the way that, you know, the chickens or the meat is, um, is raised so inhumanely. And that is a really important part of sustainability is the way that, you know, the meat and the dairy and the animals are treated, you know, in, in that farm. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I think this is going to be one of the, sh- the great shames of our time, you know, in the way that we yeah. look back at, at, at the way that things were done a hundred years ago or 200 years ago, and can't imagine that somebody could be so cruel mm-hmm. uh, in the way that they were on, on, on such a scale. I think we're going to, I think those are the conversations that are going to be happening a hundred years from now about, about how we treat animals for food. Yeah. And I think most of the time people don't really want to see it. Like after I saw that documentary, you know, sharing with friends, I was like, this is so interesting to watch. And most people, they don't want to watch it because they actually don't want to see it because then they, you know, and then you have to make, there's like that um, documentary. I haven't seen it yet. That just came out on fishing. Uh, Seaspiracy, I think it's called. It's one of those where, you know, it makes you not want to um, eat seafood anymore. Um, but there are so many great farms and and then meat is more expensive, like Belcampo and, um, you know, that are that are using more sustainable farming practices and have less of a carbon footprint, um, which are important. So I think as we can and as more restaurants can, I think it's uh, it will just obviously help the environment and the soil so much. And so other ways that people can make small changes are, like you said, choosing fair trade, fair trade coffee, um, you know, fair trade, anytime you see the fair trade. And fair trade tends to be a little less expensive a lot of times than organic, right? Yeah. I mean, I have my own uh, objections to the fair trade model. (laughs) Maybe not surprisingly, maybe you're sensing it. What is it? Share it. I want to know. So one of the the ways the way that fair trade works is it is it attaches a premium to the commodity price and rather than that premium going into the pocket of the farmer who grew the product it goes into another account that can be spent for community projects mm-hmm. um, and and it's it's dangerous right like who gets to decide how that money is spent uh, are we creating the right incentive structure for a farmer to grow a higher quality product if they personally are not going to make a whole lot more money off of it as a fair trade product. Uh, Similar to organic, the certification process is incredibly expensive and and time consuming. Um, So, I mean, the way that we've approached it, and and we've similarly to organic seen a lot of big companies build fair trade cocoa farms or coffee farms because they have the money to to make that happen, you know, right out of the gate in a way that smallholder farmers just don't. So, I mean, the way that we've approached it and and other companies in coffee and cacao and and other industries where fair trade is, is more prevalent uh, is is to say, look, it's not fair trade because we're not fair trade certified, but it's something called direct trade or, you know, everybody's got their own name for it. Mm-hmm. But in our case, it's about putting more money into the pockets of farmers. It's, uh, you know, in India, that turmeric farmer that I mentioned, for example, I think the fair trade price for turmeric is about a dollar a kilo. Um, the, the commodity price is somewhere around 60 or 70 cents a kilo. So the fair trade price is a little higher, but not a, not a ton higher. And we pay him almost six dollars a kilo. Wow. Um, so so, it, you know, the 
we don't really need to pay attention to the fair trade price. We can afford to pay him a lot more. The work that he does, the expertise that he brings uh, justifies that price. His, his turmeric is absolutely exceptional. Um, and and what we're so so what we're trying to do there is is obviously pay him a lot more for a high quality product, but also create a new system where where farmers are incentivized to grow higher quality special varieties, do something different, do something that different that's going to be apparent to to a consumer. Um, you know, in the way that we've seen this happen in wine and in coffee and and all kinds of other higher value ingredients, where where that origin, that sourcing, that that skill of the farmer really comes through uh, to the customer. And I, and I think that's so important because for somebody like me, um, I'm also an acupuncturist. Um, turmeric we've found can be tainted with heavy metals and all kinds of pesticides, and so it's really important to know where you get your turmeric from. And it sounds like where you get it from, you know, especially him being an Ayurvedic doctor, he's his turmeric is probably super clean. Yeah, turmeric is particularly challenging. There was a there was an outbreak of lead poisoning among poor women in Bangladesh a few years ago, and they couldn't figure out where it came from. And then it turned out that it, they were able to trace it back to cheap turmeric that was wow. being adulterated with lead-based dyes uh, to make it look brighter yellow. And, and that's what they were buying and eating and, and poisoning themselves and, and often fetuses or, or children. So, um, yeah, a transparent supply chain in ingredients, especially ingredients that have the health benefits of turmeric or other spices. Uh, you know, so to your earlier question, what should people do? Buy, buy things from places that you know where they come from. Buy them from companies that you can trust. Look for a, a country of origin, ideally a farm of origin. The more specificity, the better the better off you are, the better the, the more that company knows about where the ingredient is coming from. I mean, if you go pick up a, a jar of black pepper from the supermarket, it, it's unlikely to have a, a country of origin, let alone a, a region of origin or anything like that. It will tell you the manufacturing date, which is only the date that the, that the black pepper was put into the jar, but it won't tell you when it was harvested. Um, which could have been, you know, uh, as long as three or four years prior. So the, the pepper is already really old and stale and, and the whole supply chain, the, the, you know, peppers are harvested under ripe and they're stored in a certain way to, to um, you know, they've just built all of these safeguards because they know they're going to be sitting around forever. So they have to pick them under ripe. So the sharper under ripe flavor really carries through more, more clearly. Um, it, you know, it doesn't uh, it doesn't evaporate in the way that a, a ripe pepper would have a lot more complexity and a lot more flavor up front, but just wouldn't wouldn't survive a, a, you know four or five years on a on a boat and on a supermarket shelf and in somebody's cupboard. Yeah, and when you look at this, I mean, this is I'm definitely like you know I love your New York style. I'm definitely the California woo woo acupuncturist. <laughs> so when I hear you saying that, the way I think about it too is that you know I was taught you know with herbalism that you know, there's an energy to all food and there's an energy to all herbs and spices. And the way that it's grown can have really, uh, sorry for sounding woo-woo, but a high vibrational aspect. Um, and that's food that is grown in really beautiful carbon-rich soil that's organic, that's grown in the sunshine and the moonlight where, you know, these things are harvested at the right time and not picked too early and not picked too late. And basically, you're you're basically saying the same thing in your own words. It's like, here's this pepper and pepper does have a medicinal value to it. And it's being picked early. It's old. It's dry. So the vibrational 
power of that medicine or the the healing properties of that ingredient are definitely not going to be what they would be if it was harvested at the right time. And that's why, you know, after having this conversation with you and reading, you know, about the way that you source your herbs and, and the farmers and that you work with, you know, I mean, I personally am excited to try your turmeric now because you have a very high vibrational um, quality to, that has, which translates to a medicinal quality, which are things that like lower inflammation in the body and really support optimal health because everything you eat, you know, creates a chemical reaction in your body. So kudos to you for that. I hope that yeah. wasn't too out there for you. No, thanks. I appreciate it. I um, and, and I think it really comes through in flavor too, you know, that, that when something is grown by somebody who, who knows a ton about how to grow it and who cares so deeply is so passionate about what they do, uh, they grow something that tastes really good. And, and you see that in apples, you know, supermarket apples versus local app- apples from an orchard, they, they just taste different. And, and that's where we should be. That's what we should be thinking about all of our food. Totally. And it's so true. And that's usually what I say to anybody that says, what's organic? Like what? I don't, I don't like organic. And I go, well, that's fine. Go buy like a GMO apple or a GMO corn and then go buy like some organic or a tomato or go buy an organic one or from a farmer's market. And you could just taste the difference. It tastes so much better. So if all you're looking for is taste and amazing flavor, um, then choosing organic is definitely the way to go. Um, and so before we wrap up, I just want to just let give some people, our listeners, some other ideas of small changes they could make um, to support farmers and sustainability. And so we talked a little bit about fair trade and thank you for your comments on that because I was not aware of that, what you said, but also like just reducing food waste at home. We talked about choosing organic. And then if you want to go even higher than organic, there are there's now a certification, um, a regenerative farming certification um, that some companies are do- using right now. There's a, a lotus rice that we're using that's made from a regenerative, grown from a regenerative farm. And re- reducing the amount of meat, fish, and dairy that you eat is another way. And I think one of the most important ones is also eating seasonally. Like we talked about foods that aren't artificially ripened. And what else were we going to say? Um, you know, growing your own herbs or fruits and veggies, having a garden, or, you know, even if you can't afford to buy most things organic, you can grow a little farm, or even if you ha- can grow a few plants on your balcony or your deck that are bee friendly. Um, those are all things that you can do um, to su- support sustainability and support a healthier environment. Is there anything else I left out or is there any other way that we can, as consumers support these farmers besides what we talked about, which was obviously purchasing their products, but are there any organizations that we could donate to that, that are part of this? Yeah. I mean, the thing that I always suggest is really just as simple as thinking about where your food comes from. Um, you know, don't, don't feel like you need to bite off more than you can chew, so to speak. But but just when when you're doing your ingredient shopping, your grocery shopping, just just think about where could the the ingredients in this product or where could the individual products that I'm buying work where would where would they have come from? Who would have grown them? And and I, I think the the downstream effect of just thinking about it, asking those questions is really significant and and allows people to kind of approach this in a more gradual way that doesn't feel quite so overwhelming or intimidating. Um, and then in terms of organizations to support, uh, there's a great organization called A Growing Culture, um, which does global farmer advocacy, and they host weekly or sometimes monthly online events interviewing farmers from around the world about uh, you know, particular issues that are important to them in the Philippines, in India, um, throughout the Caribbean. Um, so, so just you know, 
doing what you can to, to understand what life is like for a farmer who's growing something, selling it into a pretty invisible commodity market, right? Like just like most people in the U.S. don't know where their food has come from. Most of the people who grew that food, and this is particularly true for spices, have no idea where the spices are going. They sell it into the commodity market to their local buyer, and, and that's the end of the story for them. So um, any organization that's that's opening up that supply chain in both directions, telling consumers here where their food has come from, but also bringing farmers into the conversation, telling them where their where their ingredients are going, and and um, uh, you know putting them in a position to make more informed decisions about what they grow and how they grow it and how they sell it is is incredibly valuable. Yeah, I love that. I would love to learn more about that myself. And there's another organization that I want to mention that we support called Kiss the Ground. And um, they're doing amazing things. They just put out a documentary on Netflix. I think it's called Kiss the Ground. And it's all about regenerative farming. Um, And they also have a really short program to learn. I think it's like a six-week program. And it's online where you learn about things that you can do and how, and just learning all about sustainable farming and our soil and how important it is. Um, Well, thank you so much, Ethan. I learned a lot and it was really wonderful to speak to you. And I'm I'm really, I haven't tried your spices yet because I just got them, but I'm super excited to try them. And I hope you, I think we sent you some product from Urban Remedy. So hopefully... You got to try some of our stuff. You too. did. You did. It's delicious. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And and thanks for having me on. It's a great conversation and always good to talk to other people doing similar work, you know, opening up these supply chains and, and helping everybody involved understand how they how they could be working better. Yeah, it's so important. And I think you've just made such a huge point. It's like, how do we have more conversations with the farmers and give them a voice? And I think that's critical. So thank you so much for all the work you've done. And I look forward, I will be purchasing your products when I buy spices from now on. And where where can people find your spices? Yeah, of course. Uh, The best place to buy them is our website, burlapandbarrel.com. We're on Instagram at burlapandbarrel, on Facebook at burlapandbarrel. We have a a Facebook forum, a a group of uh, dedicated home cooks who love cooking with spices and are very uh, experimental. So if you're if you're interested in in some ideas and and inspiration about how to cook with spices, check out the Burlap and Barrel Spice Forum on Facebook. Um, and we do work with with a handful of retailers across the country. Uh, in California, check out Buy Right in San Francisco. Um, Love Buy Right. Yeah, there are, there are a handful of others. I, I don't remember off the top of my head. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much, Ethan. Have a wonderful week, and thank you everybody for tuning in. Thank you for joining us at the You Are Love podcast. For more episodes just like this, please subscribe. This is Nika, and I'm wishing you a beautiful day.